morning and welcome again to Christ Central. I'm Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be reading today's scripture, which comes from Psalm chapter 1. Please give your full undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. This is the word of God at this time now. Let's give our attention to the preaching of God's holy word. Thank you, Pastor Dan. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Thank you. My name is Jim. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my pleasure to bring you God's word today. As we continue in our psalm series, uh, the Lord has led me to this psalm, and, and I think so much, if you've ever read through the book of Psalms and you begin with this psalm, it's a beautiful psalm. It's something that reminds us of the significance of our time with God and his word and, and the distinction of hearts that are either with him or without him. You know, in the past few years, the world has experienced a global pandemic. Uh, the U.S. is still uh, going through perhaps one of the most polarizing times in my lifetime. And the landscape of how we define truth, right and wrong, good or evil, has been shifting. It's during these times that it makes a huge difference between where we go for answers, uh, to whom we turn to for guidance, and where we look for truth as we uh, expose ourselves to time and to the, the voices of others. Recently, the overturning of Roe versus Wade has made huge headlines in our culture, uh, and many have shared their thoughts and their opinions. And we just want to assure you that a sermon is coming that will soon be addressing the overturning of Roe versus Wade. In many ways, what I've sensed in our culture in the hearts of so many as they speak out about their opinions and perspectives is a good sense in, with, in which we are seeking compassion and understanding and an open-mindedness to listen and to hear different viewpoints. On the other hand, there are some who... Uh, Take it very seriously that if you disagree with me, we can't even be friends anymore. This is happening in friendships, in households, uh, workplaces. And in a time such as this, it's important for us to take a step back and to see the world from God's perspective and to, call, and to pause and actually consider his counsel. In our text today, there are two groups of people mentioned, the blessed, those that are happy and how they choose to live, and the wicked. And by wicked, we're not talking about man's definition. This is God defining the world in very clear categories of those who know him and those who don't. And in terms of these two groups of people, there's also two lifestyles that they choose to live based upon whether they really know him and his truth or not. The main distinction here, though, as you read through this text, is the distinction between those who are with God and those who are not. And with or without him identifies the two groups of people and how they choose to live and the, and the decisions we make and, and how we view our world and how we choose to interact with our world. And so there are two thoughts uh, that I want us to direct our hearts to and our thoughts to this morning. 
The first one is that with or without him identifies the types of people, the two types of people as God sees them. And uh, in verses 1 to 3, he describes those who are with him. In verses 4 and 5, he describes those that are not with him. And in verse 6, he makes the final statement of their difference. Let's look at the first three verses. Blessed or righteous. The word blessed, a lot of times people have defined as those who are really happy. Those who are living life in their fullest. And it's interesting that the first psalm and then the first verse begins with a negative. Dr. Dia Carson, the emeritus professor from Trinity Seminary, uh, comments on this and speaks, speaks about the negative, the positive, and the metaphor of verse 1, 2, and 3. Verse 1 deals with the negative. It says, it tells us what not to do, to not walk, to not stand, to not sit. And as we see these negatives, we understand that, first of all, walk is in, refer in reference to the counsel, the advice, the framework of reference, or the way of thinking. To not stand in the way of sinners, uh, sometimes in, in English we talk about don't stand in, in the way. That means don't hinder my progress or my direction. But in Hebrew, the word stand really refers to what they do, uh, to take up their lifestyle. And then finally, to not sit in the company of mockers. Uh, he's speaking of mockers are obviously people who see themselves right and others wrong. And, and, and they might even be looking down upon others in their perspectives. So that's the blessed in terms of what they don't do. In terms of what they positively do, we see this contrast moving from uh, poetic parallelism, uh, parallelism into a break of that structure where we see a transition from all the comparison of walk and stand and sit to now what the righteous do. They delight in the law of the Lord. And not only do they delight in the law of the Lord, they meditate on it day and night. This criterion answers all that was wrong in the first one. The first one is all, the, all that the people don't do that we're not supposed to mimic or follow or copy. But instead, we are to delight in the law of the Lord, the instruction of God's counsel. That when it is absorbed, when it is thought through, and when it is truly being lived out, it changes everything. For example, when Joshua takes over Moses' leadership in the Old Testament, God tells Joshua that as they enter into the promised land, that uh, as you enter in, there are people who still have their gods and their way of life. And he gives them an encouragement to be courageous and yet a warning to be careful to keep his word. In Joshua chapter 1 verses 7 and 8, it's, he, the Lord says, Only be strong and very courageous, be, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to it uh, from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. A lot of the themes that we see in Psalm 1, we see here also in this warning for Joshua. It was very clear and very strong. There was, no, uh, there was no ambiguity as to what God was saying. Be courageous, be bold, and be very careful to hold to my word. The counsel of the Lord was given in such a way that there was to be no confusion between the Lord's instruction and all that was waiting for them across the Jordan River. And that was the, neg uh, the negative 
and then the positive, to delight in the law of the Lord. The third part in verse 3 is metaphorical. He describes the blessed, the happy ones, those who are meditating on God's word as those like trees planted by streams of water. And he adds the plurality of streams to emphasize how much constant nourishment that this tree is receiving. This tree is receiving so much nourishment on a constant basis that it brings forth fruit. It doesn't turn brown. It's constantly green and it bears fruit and yields its fruit in season. And there's success in the life of this person. The fruitfulness of God's word in our lives is spoken of throughout scripture. In fact, it's spoken of in chapter 15 of John when Jesus speaks to his disciples of the importance of bearing fruit as his disciples. In John 15, 7 through 11, Jesus says to his disciples, If you abide in me and my, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If, uh, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be, uh, be, uh, be full. And here again, joy, fullness of joy, like delight, is found as we follow and abide in him through keeping his commandments. But you can't keep a commandment you don't know. And you can't know a commandment you don't read. And so there's this sense of continuity with the word of God that speaks about fruitfulness and delight. And that's describing the blessed. Then verses 4 and 5 speaks about those that are without him, without God. It says, not so the wicked. And this starch contrast was intentional. That everything that the righteous and those who are blessed would do, the wicked do not do. In fact, he describes them as like chaff. And, you know, most of us have not been on, uh, in the wheat fields uh, harvesting the wheat. I know I haven't. Um, and so this picture is a picture of uh, people who are harvesting the wheat grains. And what they would do is they would gather a bunch of them together. And some describe it as holding up something metal like a shovel and, and hitting it in the wind so that as it hits, the chaff, which is the flaky part of the wheat, flies away in the wind. Others describe it as taking a group of wheat, gathering together, and just shaking it in the wind so that the chaff fly away. The scripture speaks about this chaff, and people who describe chaff, because I've never seen it, I just eat the wheat bread, um, chaff is worthless, it's useless, it's lifeless, and it's unstable. And God describes life without him in such a way that it's not fruitful. But life with him is very fruitful. And he goes on to say that therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor in the congregation of the righteous. You know, to stand in the judgment of God is a very fearful thing. And we live in a time where it is the time of salvation. It is the day of salvation. And in these days, the grace of God, the mercy of God is continually being preached and spoken about so that those who might hear might come and receive mercy and grace. And then yet, when that final day of judgment comes, we will also see now another dimension of God's attribute, which is the fact that he is holy and he is just. That sin will have to be given an account. 
And because sin will have to be given account on the day of judgment, how you stand or not able to stand is going to be determined again if you are with him or without him. One of the most beautiful pictures that I imagine is that when we're in glory and God asks the question, why should I let you into heaven? It's not because of how good of a person I am or all the wonderful things that I've done because the scripture says very clearly that our goodness falls short, terribly short of God's perfection. And that the only way I could stand on the day of judgment is because I'm not standing alone. There's an advocate, someone who stands as the very means by which I have been redeemed, saved, and forgiven. We stand as believers, not alone, but with Christ. And yet those who do not know him, those without him, will have to stand alone. And that's why the scripture says they cannot stand. Not only in the congregation of the righteous, they cannot stand the day of judgment. It's a sobering thought as we think about our world And I think a lot of times as Christians, we want to think about the goodness of God and salvation in heaven, but there is another part, and there is another mention of the reality of what is yet to come. And then verse 6 speaks about and describes the final distinction between those with him and those without him. The Lord knows, or the NIV says, watches over the way of the righteous. The way we live is based upon the one we come to know, that we are his and he is ours. One of the most beautiful themes in the Old Testament is that God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. This particular category of who we are, this identity is is unquestioned. It is not found by our choosing. It is found by his choosing. He made the covenant. He sent his son. His son died on the cross, and simply by, by faith, we are now adopted into the family of God. And so now our ways, uh, we, he knows them, he, he claims them as his own, he protects and he gives life to them. But the way of the wicked, he says, will perish. Their way will be destroyed. And there are a lot of times when maybe we watch things on TV or movies and so forth where we might envy those who do not know God and all that they have and all the lifestyle that they live. But the Lord says a lifestyle without him, a life without him, a person without him will perish. As much as God is a loving and gracious God, we also need to remember that he is equally and powerfully just and holy. The power of the message of the cross reminds us of both dimensions and attributes of God. That it is one that draws us in his grace and love and one that causes us to tremble in fear and reverence when we think about his justice and holiness. And so with him or without him identifies the two types of people and secondly, with or without him directs and defines how we live. It's clear that the unrighteous live without God because they don't think about his truth, his counsel, or his ways. The righteous, however, delight in God and in his word. The scripture says they meditate on it. They choose to live by it, and hence they bear fruit in it daily because they are near the streams of water, the source of life. The blessed righteous, what we delight in, What we truly find delight in, we enjoy, we find pleasure in. We find pleasure, hopefully, in God's word. 
The righteous also find pleasure in God's word because they meditate. They think about it. They find it important. They, they take the truths of God's word and continue to think about it throughout the days. It doesn't mean 24-7. It just means continually. And by the way, for those of you who are practicing quiet times, it's awesome. I'm glad you're doing that. I hope you don't limit it to just a short time in the beginning, middle, or end of the day. It's a relationship with God that goes throughout the day. I don't know any healthy marriage that could last on five minutes in the morning. Can you imagine if I told my wife, Jennifer, Jen, you get five minutes in the morning. That's it. After that, no conversation. (laughs) That's not going to be very good. No, a healthy relationship talks throughout the day. And that's what it means when it says meditate day and night. It is a relationship that continues to remain in a flourishing way. And yet as we hear this, that's not always the case in a lot of our lives. With him in principle, and yet sometimes in our daily practices, we struggle with sin and temptation and listening to the counsel of the wicked. D.A. Carson says that the purpose of the polarity of wisdom of psalm is to remind us of these two realities, of the difference of those who are fruitful and those that are not, those who are with him and those that are not. And he says that these are pointed out in very stark contrast to also highlight our middleness or gray. The dangerous gray is a conflict between what we profess to be true And yet, in real everyday choices and decisions that we make, there might be a conflict. There might be an inconsistency. It is that inconsistency between faith and practice. And yet, the goal of discipleship, the goal of truly walking with God, is to minimize this discrepancy. You know, my daughter, I love my daughter Liz. Um, She's 15. I think Pastor Harold and I both have been blessed with daughters named Liz. (laughs) We talk about them. and, And she's... She's so astute that whenever I say something to reprimand her, rebuke her, or correct her, she would say, and if she sees any hint of hypocrisy in my life, she'll say, but dad, you said that. Or dad, you do that. And, and you know, what can I say? Because she's speaking truth. She's very sharp about this. She'll point it out. She'll give me an example, several. And then I can't say, well, just be quiet, you know. Or do as I say, not as I do. That's truly the essence of hypocrisy. And yet this inconsistency is something we all struggle with. I struggle with. As parents, we struggle with. And some of us, even though we've been in the church for many years, we haven't grown for many years. Why? What does growth mean? What does it mean to be fruitful in our faith? Last week, Pastor Harold said, that the un- underlying dynamic in a real relationship with God is not self-discipline, brute will, power, or determination, but the surpassing and everlasting pleasures of God. I love that. I am such a romantic. I love the pleasures. I love how I feel when I come in the presence of God. I love worship for that reason. And, but Harold, Pastor Harold was very clear that it, it's not absent of the very work that we put in so that this relationship is growing and maintained. Anyone who's been married for a few years understands that there are stages of marriage that we go through. There is that romantic honeymoon stage where the person could do no wrong and we just love them to death. And then there's moments in the marriage where we start to realize they're not everything I thought they were. They start to do things and smell like things that is not good. 
And that's the reality phase. And then the deeper love phase happens as you fight through and consistently demonstrate and practice this loving relationship together where love is patient and kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. It is not self-seeking. And then you find that love is not always just how you feel, but it's how you choose to live so that the feelings then follow. The focus of this underlying dynamic is a relationship, a passionate relationship with God. And yet we also understand that this passionate relationship with God continues and is challenged and back and forth as we continue in our daily struggles of discipline and of the labor of what it means not to earn anything with God, because we can't, but the effort of really putting in that time to really meet with him and to understand he is our love. It is to be next to the streams of water. It is to be intentional to intake this nutrition. And where the metaphor breaks down is that you and I don't have roots that just naturally drink water as we are near it. Here's my Bible. I don't just naturally start intaking truth. (laughs) I have to actually open it, read it, and then engage my heart with it. You know, a lot of times... (laughs) As guys, when we, when we talk about really bonding, we talk about hanging out. We could just be near each other, watch a game, never talk, and we'd be like, cool. <laughs> we can't, I can't do that with my wife. I can't just sit there and say, hey, we spent an hour together. Cool? She's like, no. <laughs> we need to talk. We need to be engaged. You need to open up this book and share your thoughts and feelings. That's when guys go, oh, man. To be near the streams of water is to understand the reality of relationships, that it requires time, intentionality, and consistency. So then how do the righteous find delight in him? Because this is the most important part of this entire text, because as we are seeking God to be with God and not be those without him, how do we find delight in this? Because if we're honest, When it comes to the word of God, I don't know if delight is actually the word we would use. A lot of times we would use the word necessary, meaningful, foundational. I don't know too many people go, Bible, I I love, I delight in it. Oh man, we're going to get to read the Bible? Oh yes. I know I say this jokingly, but isn't that the struggle? Well, here... The righteous find delight in him because, first of all, the instruction of Psalm 1 is that, one, be mindful to whom you are listening. Be mindful where you walk, stand, and sit. If we translate into today's culture, one of the strongest struggles that I see in my children's life and in my life in our home is the fact that there is a strong influence from our media, this little gadget. That when I check the, the time, the screen time, it's hours. And when you look at where those hours have gone, I have a Bible app on here. <laughs> but that's not where the majority of the time has gone. It's gone to many other things of interest. And I'm not saying that these things are wrong. And please don't get me wrong that I'm not here to try to make you feel guilty for all the things you watch or spend your time on. But it is to be mindful of where we give our attention. You know, as we, as, we hear, as we hear truths or statements or stories and we take that in, it starts to form and shape what we call the worldview. 
And a, and, and a definition of the worldview in a book uh, by George Barna, uh, the director of, re- and, of research and co-founder of the Cultural Research Center in Arizona Christian University, he published recently a book entitled The American Worldview Inventory 2021-2022. It's a very recent survey that he did with American adults. And he defines the worldview in this way. He says, the worldview is a combination of beliefs and behavior. What you, uh, you do what you believe. Therefore, you must think like Jesus if you want to live like Jesus. That's a very good, simple statement. And yet he continues to define the worldview as a worldview is the filter through which you experience, interpret, and respond to the world. It is, in essence, your decision-making filter. And that filter is informed by the things that we hear and we expose our thoughts and our lives to, our families to. And that's why it's so important that even as we gather like this on a Sunday, this is an important time where we are constantly exposed to the Word of God, constantly exposed to the gathering and the fellowship of saints as we sing, as we confess our faith and our sins, that we do this consistently and our children are able to join us in that. And yet one of the many things that is espoused uh, in that book and, and talked about in its findings is that it talks about the many different secular, uh, the many different worldviews. You might have heard of these and I can't define them right now because I don't have time, but I just want to list some of them that are categorized as worldviews that possibly people hold. Secular humanism, postmodernism, Eastern mysticism, moralistic therapeutic deism, Marxism, nihilism, and biblical theism. And you would think that of all these, that in, in, a, in a country that claims to be Christian, that the most popular view would be biblical theism, but it's not. It is one of the, it is, it's on the top versus the others, but the, the view that was held by 9 out of 10 American adults, 88% that this survey found, is what they call an impure, unrecognizable worldview that is nothing more than a customized personal blend of disparate ideas adopted by, from multiple philosophies of life. This worldview is called syncretism. Syncretism is simply the combination of different worldviews because I like this, I don't like this, I like this, I don't like this, and then it's a hodgepodge of all the different things and ideas that we hold. Whether they are consistent or not, whether they conflict or contradict each other or not, that's what happens. And a lot of Americans hold to what's called a syncretistic worldview. It's highly individualized. And what has emerged in our culture for many are these set beliefs of ideas that have come together, even for Christians. Christians were not immune to the hodgepodgeness of this worldview. That there are some questions that they ask to see how consistent our answers would be. And there are a lot of Christians who also, who were biblical theists, who would also answer certain things that are not consistent with our worldview as Christians. And yet one of the most uh, interesting things about this study is the group that it affected the most. It is the younger generation. Those that were 30 and younger or so. The millennials and the younger And the real danger is that they're exposed so much to many different topics and ideas and not the word of God that sometimes what's shaping their thoughts and their lifestyle isn't God and his truth, but it's everything else. It reminded me of a passage when uh, the people of Israel had come into the promised land. And in the book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So one generation died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. 
As a, as a pastor for families, as a father, that scared me. That in one generation, there could, they could rise up a group of people who did not know the Lord or all that he had done. There are a lot of ideas as to why that happened, and we're not told in Scripture exactly what happened that led to that. But even the major influences that are given in this report speaks about the media, public policy, friends and family and schools, that people, when they need when they need some guidance and some wisdom and instruction that we often turn to, and this is not bad, friends and family and, and people we know. That's not bad, but it's not the word of God. A lot of our opinions sometimes is confusing. And, and the church's influence in this is waning more and more. And in the pursuit of being understanding and compassionate and being relational, we seek to be open to the ideas and, and opinions and beliefs of others, which is great for conversation and for dialogue. But the problem is when it starts to become a part of our own views as God's people. And so to combat this, the psalmist calls us to delight yourself in the word of God, to delight yourself in the law of God. And again, most people don't use the word delight. But as we understand this, delight is the goal. And the path to delight is discipline. It is that daily time with God that may feel dry at times. And, I, and pastors, we're the first to admit that as we spend time with God, it's not all just, just explosions and, and, and wows and amazing. It's not. Sometimes it's just there. And... I know my wife is sitting right here, but so are sometimes our marriage relationships. <laughs> it's just there. Sometimes there's wows. Sometimes a particular truth, then speaking to your own heart about it until God comes near and you sense his presence. It's taking the truths of the Bible and pressing them down into the base of your heart till it catches fire. That takes time. That takes meditating. And what that means, meditation is probably the equivalent of digesting. How many of you have ever eaten a big meal and decided to go for a quick run? You know what's going to happen? You're going to barf that out. <laughs> or at least it's not going to digest well. Meditation is our way of reading something and then just sitting there and thinking about it. Let it digest. Let it seep in. In our culture, in our time span, there are so many times when I know that we feel rushed. I, I totally understand that. Parents of young kids, I get it. You wake up, you're at the breakfast table, you're eating, and then you've got to rush out. So sometimes you don't even have time for the Word of God. And if you do, it's here it is, let's go. But when you can, when you can, throughout the day, I want to encourage you to pause and just simply think about it. Reread it again. Try to commit it to memory. In Eastern mysticism, uh, in Easter, uh, Eastern meditation, the goal is to empty your mind with the intention of connecting with the essential nature. In Christian meditation, it has the goal of filling one's mind with Scripture, with the intention to connect with God. So, contrary to Eastern meditation, our Christian meditation is about is about filling our mind, not just with thoughts, but scripture, and then intentionally trying to connect with God. And we're called to do this 
as happy, blessed Christians, as believers, those who are with him day and night, intentionally. To delight yourself in God's word, it is, it is something that I hope that we can say is true. And as a parent and as the family pastor here at Christ Central, that one of the challenges of being a parent to children who are now teenagers and about to become young adults In our daily schedule here in Southern California, one of the hardest things is to find time, even as individuals or families, to just sit and enjoy God and his word. I'm thankful that my kids can be here in worship to hear and sing praises with us. And I know they're hearing the word of God in youth ministry and children's ministry. We thank God for everyone who serves. And yet, this is only once a week. What happens Monday through Saturday, what happens at home, what they see us do, they will mimic because discipleship is not often taught. It's caught. It's, it's, they will mimic what, we, what they see us do. And this is where I don't mean guilt. I just want us to remember the importance that delight comes when we spend time and we're, when we're able to get through those times when it's so difficult and it feels dry to the moments when you're just, your soul is exploding. And if you've ever experienced that, you know It's hard to find. It may not happen frequently, but it is present and available. But it cannot be known and experienced unless we find consistency and intentionality. Pastor Tim Keller, speaking on this psalm, he wrote a book on the psalms, and in his devotional, he was commenting how oftentimes the the D word that we think about when it comes to the law of God or the word of God is not delight, but despair. Because when we think about it, how much time do we really spend in God's word? When we think of God's word, do we think of it joyfully or do we think of it as drudgery? Do we see it as obligation or delight? And then he goes on to say, there's only one person who truly delights in the law of the Lord, who is like an evergreen tree that yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. He says this ultimately describes Jesus, who alone is perfect evergreen, and able to love God perfectly. This gray area, this middleness, by the grace of God and by only through Christ, can we be free from any desires to perform or to gain or to earn, but free to love and joyfully, delightfully come into his presence. In Psalm 40, verse 6, it says, In sacrifice and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Who's that speaking of? In Hebrews 10, verse 5 and following, It says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. My dear friends, the difference between the blessed and the unblessed is him. And you're either with him 
or you're without him. And the law of God becomes a delight when we understand that everyone in this, according to this psalm, were not the blessed, but it was only Jesus who was the blessed. And then we find that when we say, why should he love me? Why should he care for me? Why should he call me his own? The answer is not because of all that I've done. Because scripture very clearly says that falls very short of God's perfection and requirement. The only reason why we are received and loved and are his is because his own son became the very object of rejection and sin. Dear brothers and sisters, I love Jesus. I know you love Jesus. Not because we're so good and he's so good. Because we're in the middle. We're that gray that needs desperately the grace of God so that we can be truly and called truly and live truly as the blessed righteous. And once we discover this and find the delight in this, then we are called to be what that book uh, by George Barna calls the integrated disciple. I like that term. Where both truth and life are integrated and consistent. And then we start to just share it with others, not shoving scripture down their throat, but just telling them the delight of our lives. And I hope that that would be the most beautiful and attractive thing in our culture, the delight of people, not the anger of people, the delight of our love for someone, not the separation. And these distinctions are God-given. And as we see them, I hope we see both his loving grace as well as his holiness and justice. And when we see them both, we see the cross. And for that, we give God worship. And in that, we find his pleasures. His pleasures in us and our pleasures in him. Let's be a people with him. Let's find our delight in his truth and ultimately in a God who gives this truth. And I hope that you and I truly will discover that the pleasures of God, though it is found in our times with him, it is also by his grace that he allows us to experience him and see him and hear him each day. I hope you spend time in his word daily, meditating on it, digesting it, and allowing God's goodness and delight to be a part of your day. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a very difficult time where so many opinions and thoughts roam around us. Our access to information is so quick. And yet, I pray now today for families, for children, for young adults, for all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. May we truly remember the beauty, the delight, the pleasure to come into your presence, not only in times of worship, but on days when we are not gathered together to sit at your presence, at your feet, through your word, through scripture, 
to meditate on it, and to allow your truth and your spirit to speak to our hearts so richly and so deeply that, can, that it causes us to bear fruit, fruit everlasting. And may this honor you and be pleasing to you. I pray this in Jesus' name.